EcoHealth, your internet radio. Dan sê goeiemiddag en welkom hier op Radio EcoHealth. Ons is hier met die road trip show. Uh, Diederik, let's see if your mic is uh, performing. Good afternoon. Yes, it is. Is my mic performing? Now, it's just performing. Now, now I just need to perform. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've got good signal there. Awesome. But anyway, anyway we're back, we back on the road today. <coughs> And we have, we, we actually have quite an interesting week in history. Uh, two quite momentous events actually happened in the past year. 1854, the Bloemfontein or the Orange River Bloemfontein Convention was signed, which officially made the Orange Free State independent. Oh, yes. And quite a tragic one, 90 years ago was what was now being called the Rand Revolt or the 1922 strike. Ah, yes, I've heard of that Massive one. uprising of miners across the Witwatersrand and army got called in to put the strike down. Like 10, 15,000 troops were mobilized to put the strike down. Whoa. Um, Saibakan Air Force even <coughs> bombed parts of Johannesburg. They bombed Forsberg and they bombed uh, parts of the East Rand. Gee whiz. Machine guns were there. Artillery was used. There's a little spot at the junction of, of Jan Smuts and um, Empire. If you go to the little traffic island, that actually was an artillery emplacement oh. bombing Fordsburg at one stage. So massive uprising, hundreds of people wow. dead. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a somber one. But it, it gave me a, an interesting day yesterday because, I, oh, okay. or not yesterday, um, last last week I, I begged the day off in the morning. Because, oh. we'll, and we'll get into it. I'm actually formulating one podcast of um, putting putting the 22 strike along with one or two other happenings around the gold mining industry. Oh, yes. And uh, there's no memorials to the 22 strike. There's nothing out there. There's no official monuments, no memorials, no anything. Oh. And it's an interesting one because so much happened there, but I think it yeah. um, embarrassed the government so badly that the... You know that the that the workers and the, particularly the white workers went on strike and started this, this this revolution. That once it had been suppressed, they decided there's not going to be any monuments, memorials. So, yeah, we obviously want to commemorate it and it sparked my interest in it and to try and find some interesting spots. I spent uh, a bit of a day driving around Johannesburg and some of those other areas, and I spent a morning hunting some graves in Brixton Cemetery. Oh, yeah. Is there any numbers on how many people got injured or died there? Ah, uh, They've got somewhere over 200, 260 or something, or 290-something people died in the Rand Revolt. Wow. So this is not yes. a, this, this yeah, is not a little a... Mickey, Mouse, Mickey Mouse operation. This, this yeah. is serious stuff. I mean, this was strikers ambushing army, um, citizen force regiments have been called up. There was, there's a place called the, the, Bat, the Battle of Ellis Park, believe it or not. Oh, um, okay. I think it was the Imperial Imperial Light Horse was busy <coughs> mustering on one of the parade grounds on one of the fields there, and the miners got the high ground and ambushed the guys in Ellis Park. Okay, and but shot it's a couple of them. Nothing to do with the rugby ball. Nothing to do with the rugby <laughs> ball. No, they weren't the Murin with the Springboks lost or something. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, Forsberg Forsberg was the main was was sort of the, the focus at the end of it. Yeah, and an interesting one there is at, in the Brixton Cemetery. There's, there's there's a whole there's a couple of graves there that we're busy adding to our app. But the two ringleaders, a guy by the name of Spendiff and another chap by the name of Fisher, were the the leaders of the Rand Revolt, and they committed suicide in a building in Fordsburg. Oh, at the end of it, when they realised that the game was up and they weren't going to get yeah. anywhere, they they actually committed suicide. Um, 
there's 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 one of the guys who was hanged. One of the one of the strikers shot a shopkeeper on the street, just put him up against the wall and executed him. Oh wow! And uh, <coughs> he was hanged for a crime of murder. So there's a couple of those interesting sites that are findable. Yeah, and we're trying to find little plaques and memorials around Joburg, but there's no official anything to the 1922 strike. Yeah. Yeah, it's recorded in a couple of the regimental histories. The Transvaal Scottish took a, took a bit of a hammering. They lost they lost several guys. I think they lost thirteen or seventeen people in the in that in the various actions between Dunswart and um, Forsberg. Yeah. So yeah, not a, not a pleasant happening, but definitely definitely I think worth worth remembering. Yeah. But I just find it quite 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 strange that the Air Force actually bombed Johannesburg and Bonoli. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It kind of shows the seriousness of what we were dealing with. So, yeah, so that was was one of my days last week. I kind of get a kick out of that. You find these little spots and you unravel it. And I had some people from the Johannesburg Heritage Society helping me out. And they came through. So, yeah, yeah, that was just cool. But anyway, I think think last time we we were still on the N1. And we hadn't. We had. We, we we stopped. I think at the the Witkreis monument or the yes um, the yeah. farm owners monument just just south of Polokwane or Petersburg. Yeah. And we were on that subject of farm murders. I think there's another four or five farm murders been recorded since since we actually had them had the podcast yeah. last week. There's another oh. spate of these farm murders going on. Oh, jeez. So yeah, not not cool. <clears throat> no, not at all. But anyway, so now you're heading you're heading into into Polokwane or Petersburg. Now Petersburg is one of the original foot trekker towns, and uh, it wasn't the original settlement of the foot trekkers. They first settled in this little spot called Zout Zoutpansbergdorp, uh, about a hundred k's away to the northwest. Oh, but okay. that area notorious for malaria and all sorts of other diseases. So Zoutpansbergdorp. Um, didn't work as long with a lot of clashes with the local tribes. The the vendors and the and the, the guys up there weren't weren't particularly keen on having these oh, foot trekkers yes. in their area. So eighteen eighty six Newtown gets established. I mean the first time we're talking eighteen forties, you know, early eighteen forties. Yeah. But by eighteen eighty six the the Newtown comes along and they actually called it Petersburg in honor of the foot trekker leader Pietrus Johannes Jubar. Okay. It's it's the largest town in South Africa north of the Gauteng complex, so it's quite a major a major um spot. It's you know, of, of economic importance and stuff, but yeah. It's not it's not exactly a huge town. It's more a little bit more notorious, I think. Yeah, yeah. Again it had one of the <laughs> Boer War concentration camps. Uh obviously somewhere around four thousand women and children were incarcerated in that one. But the other one was an interesting one. It also um, has the dubious distinction of being the place where Jacob Zuma was voted in as president of the ANC. Oh, so I'm not okay. sure if that's a good yeah. thing or a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> in in December 2007 at the African National Congress um, annual or 52nd National Conference, they voted Jacob Zuma in as president of the ANC. So yeah, uh, let's just call it a party because that's all it was. <laughs> they just coying a party with our money. <laughs> yeah, so. but there are again. There's a couple of surprising little spots in Petersburg, just to the south of it. There's actually a very pleasant little game reserve there, and that, that game reserve also 
hosts what's called the Bakoni Malapa Northern Sutu Open Air Museum. Some of these cultural villages that you can visit. You can see the traditional building style and the pot making and the the, the beer brewing and the, you know, the handcraft and that kind of stuff, which is kind yeah, of cool. Yeah. In town, of course, you then got the Petersburg Concentration Camp Cemetery. What makes this one a little bit more interesting is they've actually got a memorial wall up there. Oh, And nice. they've got, on the wall, they've actually got some of the original tombstones. Because, you know, these old cemeteries, once once the families have passed along, and we see it all over the place, yeah. you know, two, three, four generations later, no one's there to really look after those graves. Yeah, And somehow there's some or other weird mentality with people that like to vandalize old cemeteries. You see it every yeah. time we go back, there's stones and memorials being kicked over and defaced and stuff. So what they've done in Petersburg, yeah. they've actually taken some of the old headstones, put them up in a memorial on a wall. Yeah, which makes it um, sort of a little bit, little bit more, a little bit different than than the other ones. Yeah, but what does strike you at that one is the actual constant at the at the memorial. There's a statue, and this one sort of really hits home. It's a statue of a little kid, a little child, a little boy, sitting on a, it looks like an ammunition box or a crate. Oh, yeah. And he sits there with this real look of hunger and yearning and yes. sadness. Because, yeah. again, it's, um, you know, these kids sitting in, the, sitting in, these, in these concentration camps for two, three years, starving to death. Yeah. And this, this, that's that's one of those little statues that really hits you hard. Yeah. And it's a little again, it's a little bit different because most of the statues are the women, women and children. You know, the women in the in the concentration camps or that yeah. kind of stuff. This is this one's just a little bit different. Yeah. And a, quite a heartrending little statue that you've got there. But one of the surprising statues in Petersburg, in Petersburg itself, in Petersburg Central or Polokwane Central is a statue to a guy by the name of Tom Nordia. Now, I bet you you don't know who Tom Nordia was. No cooking clue. He was actually state president of South Africa from 1967 to 1968. Oh. Now, you're going to stare at me because you've never heard of this guy. Yeah. (laughs) And in fact, I would guarantee probably 99% of our listeners have also never heard of this guy. If I could see you, I would stare at you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair comment. Fair, I, I fair chip. throw one in there. Fair chip, fair chip, But the guy's name was Joshua Francois Nordia, nicknamed Tom, 1889-1969. He was a minister, minister post and telegraph. He was a minister of health. He was a minister of finance. He was um, then appointed after those posts. I mean, you don't you don't become minister of finance uh, in those days if you if you if you were an idiot. You were one of the yeah. leading the leading guys in in parliament. Yeah. He was then appointed as president of the Senate. At that stage, we still had a Senate in South Africa. Oh yeah, I think we spoke about it last week as well. And according to the Constitution, 1961, the president of the Senate serves in an what's called an ex officio position as state president whenever that office is vacant. Oh, so if the uh, state president goes overseas for a length of time or something like that, then the, then the president of the Senate takes over that post. But we had a, a guy by the name of um, Dr. Eben Dongas, 
We had presidents. We had state president Sia Swat. 1967, Yerban Dongas is voted in but never makes it as president. He dies. Oh. So now you've got this vacant post. <laughs> yeah. And here comes Mr. Tom Nodia. <clears throat> so Nodia took over for just on about a year and still state president Jim Fushia could actually come in and take yeah. over. So, you know, those names you all know. We know President yes, Swart, yeah. we know Jim Fushia, we, I mean, that, that little sort of musical chairs in between there. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of an interesting um, twist. Interesting little mm. twist to history there that yeah. we have this guy who's absolutely unknown, Tom Nodia. No, one, no one's ever heard of President Tom Nodia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the high schools in, in, in town is actually named after him in case people are wondering who Mr. Tom Nodia was. And he he was actually one of the one of the more influential political leaders for Polokwani, the Polokwani district. That was his yeah. his district. So obviously that's where that that all comes from. His valley. Yeah. <laughs> so our president President Tom Nodia, or Joshua Francois Nodia. Let's be let's be. There's another one that uh, the, the, there's obviously there's the statues there for the guy who gave his name to Petersburg to for Pete and Hendrina Hubert, and he was. Actually, in, again, interesting guy in that Pete Hubert was Commandant General of the Old Transvaal Republic. Okay. And that was in the time of President Kruger. And Pete Hubert was actually one of the guys who fought at the Battle of Majuba. Oh. And that was yeah. the final battle of the First Anglo-Boer War. We hardly ever touch on the First Anglo-Boer War. Because it was a very short, sharp little engagement, on, and it, only, yeah. it was only a couple of months of duration before the Boer republics clapped the English hard enough to send them packing. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, Majuba was one was the absolute final battle. Majuba's a hill, sort of towards northern KZN on the border of the old Transvaal. Yeah, and there's a couple of spots there that you can still visit on Majuba. But he was he was the chief in charge there at the Battle of, Maju- of Majuba. And it's an interesting one because again, that Battle of Majuba stuck in the in the memories of the British so badly because I mean they were seriously humiliated in the First Anglo-Boer War. <laughs> I mean here you got this yeah. massive colonial empire that take on this bunch of farmers and lose. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> they didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. And I remember, actually, I think I think it's in Thomas Pakenham's book. I mean, Thomas Packenham wrote that book, The Anglo-Boer War, which yeah. is considered almost like the Bible on the history of the Anglo-Boer War. It's a stunning book. It's hard. It's yeah. hard reading, man. It's like one of those books that puts you to sleep if you really, if you really go into it. You can read five or six pages yeah. and you're out cold. <laughs> but it's a really well-researched, super detailed book on the Anglo-Boer War. And there's yeah. a couple of photographs on there, in there, and the one of them was the Boers had scribbled some kind of graffiti on a wall, and the Brits had come back. And sort of said sort of something in the line of revenge for Majuba. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so even all those years later, those British soldiers still had Majuba stuck in the back of their yeah, head. Yeah. That it was time to now <laughs> for a bit of revenge against the Boers. <laughs> there's, an, there's, a, there's actually an interesting little photographic museum in, in Polokwani as well called the Hugh Exton Photographic Museum. Early days of photography, old cameras and things like that. A bit oh, of an yeah. unusual one to find. In in a in a spot like that, yeah, especially Polokwane. Yeah, in Polokwane, it's very yeah. strange. 
<laughs> but one again, one of the interesting parts of the, the building that it, that it's housed in is an old prefabricated house. Oh, now, yeah. we hit a prefabricated structure a little bit later up uh, up in Louis Chuchard as well. But And there's one other prefab house that I know of, which is in Maputo in Mozambique, called the Steel House. Okay. And it was part of the colonial, or it was a colonial project. I mean, you're talking about Maputo is Portuguese. You're talking at this stage, this is British. Yeah. But what they would do is they would manufacture in Europe ship it out to the colonies, put it on ox carts, send it up there, and then build these houses. And it was a way to boost industry in the motherland, as it were, yeah. by using yeah. resources and stuff in the colonies. And it's one of the very, very few prefab houses from that era that I know of that is still standing, and that happens to be in Polakwani, and this yeah. museum is in there. So... Uh, just just a funny one. There's a fort that we go and explore a little bit later on in, in Louis Trichot. And then I know of the, what they... They actually call it the Steel House in Maputo. Okay. But the one in Maputo, again, they say it didn't work very well because you, you're putting up the steel structure of two or three stories. Oh. Great concept. Yeah. But it's made of steel. Yeah. And you're in a tropical sun. <laughs> and it used to cook. And yeah. the thing actually became uninhabitable during the heat of the day. Yeah. So the the concept was great, but the execution was <laughs> well, was was not great. Yeah. You still got a you got a stunning Dutch Reformed church in town there as well, and it's uh, one of the few ch- churches that can actually arguably chase its roots right back to the Great Trek um, of Andries Andries Hendrik Potgieter. And Reverend Andrew Murray even visited visited there 1850. So this this is a church that goes right back to the 1850s, maybe even late 1840 somewhere. Yeah, that makes one of the older older congregations in um, in the country. <coughs> now, when you come out of out of Polokwane, stroke Petersburg, obviously the N1 just uh, carries straight on up the highway. Yeah. But I'm going to do a little detour just, just purely out of interest sake because the only thing really of interest between Petersburg and Louis Trichardt is that you cross the Tropic of Capricorn. Okay. There's a little line of bricks in the, in, the, in the road and there's a little monument on the side saying that you're now entering tropical Africa. Yeah. But the road out of, out of Polokwane, Petersburg, if you head out towards the east, you follow the signs out towards Mangkweng. Just outside Mangkweng, you keep on going, and you obviously hit the ZCC. The ZCC's got their main their yeah. main church just outside of Petersburg. And I've, I've got it in my head that it's actually, I think, the largest Christian church in Africa. Seven million adherents to the ZCC. Wow. Okay. Spread across South Africa, Zimbabwe, yeah. Botswana, etc., etc. I yeah. know they did go through a split <coughs> relatively recently because the ZCC was founded by the Prophet. And the prophet had two sons, and of course the two sons decided that they were uh, both a prophet. And the ZCC <laughs> split down the middle. I don't know if they've healed that rift yet, but normally you'd have the ZCC with a little cross, you know, the little star lapel badge. The adherents yeah. of the church would have the little star and lapel badge. And then later on you'd see ZCC, other guys with a little dove on it, meaning that that, that, that was the split. Ah, okay. But it's a stunning drive. Once you, <clears throat> once you get out of, out of past Mangkweng and all the townships, um, out of there, then you actually get into the mountains um, around Sanin. 
Yeah. And we're now heading into the land of Mojaji, the legendary Mojaji, the rain queen. Okay. <laughs> I haven't heard of that one. You've never heard of Mojaji, no. the rain queen? Oh, my word. No, I haven't heard that one. Absolutely stunning story. We now again we're touching on. I'll remember Barnard from Crooks Corner, Kenya. Yes, yes. He writes a stunning summary of of the Rain Queen in his book Lost Trail or the Ivory Trail. Okay. As even even just to read the, the the two chapters or three chapters on Majaji is is worth buying that book. Majaji is the legendary Rain Queen, and legend is that she was one of the. Refugees from the fall of Great Zimbabwe. Okay. And she came and moved south, fleeing the disruption of Great Zimbabwe. And with her, she brought the magic of making rain. Yeah. Now, there's a whole beautiful long story about how she came to get her powers. But she still lives in the mountains outside of Tsinin. You can actually visit the Mojaji Saikad Forest. Um, in that area, beautiful, beautiful area to drive through. But even Nelson Mandela went and paid homage to Majaji the Rain Queen. Okay. And obviously it's not the Rain Queen from 14 or 1500, whenever they, whenever Great Zimbabwe imploded. Yeah. But it's been an, an unbroken succession of ladies who have taken over that position yeah. as the Rain Queen. And an awful lot of people still believe that she has power over the weather and has the ability to make the rain. Okay. <laughs> but just outside of Harnetsburg, or as you're coming through through those mountains, again, it's an absolutely stunning drive before you get into... Yeah, up those mountains and stuff. Ah, it's absolutely it's beautiful. beautiful. I mean, yeah. you've got that whole Mahubus Kloof, Davos Kloof area around yeah. there. But... One of the interesting little spots in a little town called Harnesburg. Now, Harnesburg is a tiny little spot. Yeah, it's tiny. But, again, it gives you... There's, there's ties there to the Anglo-Boer War. Because in Harnesburg, there's a, there's a memorial to one of the Long Tom guns. The Long Tom guns oh, were the yeah. cannons that, that Paul Kruger had bought when he saw war was brewing with England. Yeah. And um, there's a memorial to the Long Tom gun in Harnesburg. But obviously, towing one of these massive cannons around the countryside is not exactly an easy way to escape yeah. your enemies. Yeah. And by August 1900, the war had transformed from a conventional type of war. The last conventional battle was fought at a place called Barkhandal, which is just on the escarpment as you're going down oh. towards from Johannesburg. You're going down, you go through Belfast, just outside Belfast there. There's a big memorial to the Battle of Barkhandal. That's considered the last conventional battle. After that, you turned into a guerrilla type of war. Now you're trying to move fast on horseback and do yeah. like commander raid kind of things. You can't have these sodding great big cannons with you. Yeah. So the cannons got blown up. And that's why there's that Long Tom Memorial on the Long Tom Pass outside of Landenburg. You've probably driven past that one at some stage. There's a replica of the cannon up on the pass there. But relatively unknown is that the very last of these cannons was actually blown up by the Boer forces just to the north of Harnetsburg. Okay. It's a little bit of a mission to find it. It's down a couple of little dirt roads and things, but you can find it. And they've got a lovely little spot there. There's a massive crater in the ground, which is where they blew the thing up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the crater still exists. But they built a little platform there, and there's a stunning view site over, over that whole area. And... Um, 
It's just such a stunning little spot. I mean, and, and an awful lot of the locals seem to use it as a um, as a little picnic site. Yeah, Konsambrai. Konsambrai. And it's actually, believe it or not, it's actually on a spot that's now become known as Fierskop. Fierskop. Okay. Fierskop. And uh, it's called Fierskop. I think I've actually been there. Now that I think about it, I think I've actually been there. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Fierskop because a lot of people would congregate there on the anniversary of the day of Battle of Blood River, December the 16th, and have a little party there yeah. and a commemoration for the Blood River Day. Yeah. And that's where, that's where it got its name, Fierskop. <laughs> but you get the most stunning view out over the whole Volkberg, the area there called the Volkberg. Yeah. And you can understand why the cannon was actually placed there because they dominated all that entire that entire area. Yeah. With that cannon. So, if you detour around through there, you then can go through. I mean, you you eventually you eventually sort of get out now you're heading towards in into Tsanin. Tsanin for me is always like a tiny it's a little, like a little bit of a small cramped little town at the, the yeah they've yeah. got all the space in the world but all the roads seem to be narrow and it's like a very busy little spot yeah a lot of farms it, it's a lot of farms i mean the, the fruit and stuff you get out of that area is stunning yeah but the town itself has never never really appealed to me it's like it's it's, it's like a yeah it's too too small and cramped and the roads go in circles yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> But it's right there. It's on the Lataba River, one of the major rivers in South Africa, the Lataba. And it's, it's considered to be the breadbasket, one of the breadbaskets of South Africa. But getting into Tsunin, you go across what's called the Seibrand and Mariki van Niekerk bridges. Now, Seibrand van Niekerk, again, is one of those names that you've always sort of heard about. But um, you never quite know exactly where he fits into the picture. Yeah. And he actually served as administrator of the Transvaal, equal today to the Premier, the Provincial Premier. So he administrated the Transvaal yeah. um, to the late 60s, early 70s. And he was known for all of his public infrastructure projects. He was one of those guys that really okay. got infrastructure yeah. and stuff done. And he became member of the Volksraad for a while. And he was also one of the founding members of the Conservative Party in South Africa, which meant that he had to resign from the Volksraad. So he seemed to take a bit of a sidestep in mainstream politics because yeah. he just couldn't go the same route as the old National Party at that stage. Yeah. There's a little museum. Tanin Museum is in there. Again, cultural history, the North Sutu Vendor, Tsonga communities who all live in and around there. And again, an interesting character... It's a guy by a Swedish, an originally Swedish immigrant, a guy by the name of Jürgen Witt. He, he arrives in South Africa in the early 1950s. His uncles are in South Africa. They're busy with some other land claim up in East Africa, trying to get some, get some land back. It doesn't work. And they decide to stay in South Africa. And they arrive in Sanin in the 1960s, and he had this fascination with um, African art and sculptures, and he put together oh, yeah. a massive private collection, over 4,000 items wow. of African sculpture, pottery, artifacts and stuff in the yeah. museum donated by this guy. So, yeah, a bit of an unknown character, but again, interesting stuff there. Yeah, that's a lot. 
You got another <laughs> yes. unknown character, a guy Siegfried Annika. And uh, 1895 to 1955, and he opened up a malaria research institute. One of the oh. absolute pioneers in in malaria um, research and stuff. So also well known in Bilharzia. So oh, yeah. specialist in these weird African diseases. Again, a little bit of an unknown guy. And of course, you've got the Anglo Boer War Monument. And the Anglo-Boer War Monument here also has a bit of significance because it's this—it's in this district where a crowd called the Bushveld Carboneers operated. Bushveld Carboneers. Bushveld Carboneers. Now, this was an Australian outfit. Okay. The Australians also fought on the side of the British. <laughs> Britain brought troops in from over, over the entire empire, Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, yeah. Indians. I mean, guys from the Caribbean were... Even even came through here. Gee whiz. And Breaker Morant is buried and in, in Pretoria. And unfortunately he was convicted of murder. Oh. He was convicted of shooting Boer prisoners of war. Ah. It is still okay. a big issue in Australia. Australia is still trying to petition to have him pardoned. Um, there's movies made about this entire incident. At some stage, one of his friends was shot by one of the Boers. The Boer was captured, and the Boer was apparently wearing captured uniform. Ah, okay. That, of course, is a treasonable and a, and a offense Yeah, that is subject to the death penalty. Yeah. But there's a whole lot of stories, and the stories all just don't quite all add up to 100% on the actual <laughs> okay. um Happenings <clears throat> and of consequences of, of this entire thing leading yeah. up to the end of it. And Breaker Morant shot one of the prisoners out of hand. And he claimed it was because he was wearing uniform. But it also happened that this guy was the guy that shot his buddy. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. But... <laughs> <laughs> a little bit controversy. Yeah, there's a lot of con- controversy <clears throat> around that one. So... Uh, that, that 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 little Boer War Memorial there, sort of has has the has the ghosts of a couple of people there. Um, you and I got another towering figure in 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 there, a guy by the name of Hans Marinsky. Marinsky. Now that again is one of these names that you hear all over the place. There's a Hans Marinsky game reserve. There's um, yeah. the library. The library at the University of Pretoria is actually named after Hans Marinsky. Okay. And Interesting. He was a famous geologist, and he died. He died in the middle of the night. He died in 1952. But son of a German missionary, or German missionaries rather, became a geologist. But he discovered. I mean, just to list a couple of the things. Yeah. He discovered the alluvial diamonds in Alexander Bay. Okay. He discovered the chrome and platinum reefs in Leidenberg, or now Mashishing. Yeah. He discovered the copper and phosphates in Palabora. Okay, so he, he discovered a... gold in the Free State. Jeez. And he, cl- and, he, and he discovered the biggest chrome deposit at a place called Yachtless, which is just south of Petersburg. Okay. So this guy is responsible for probably like 30, 40% of our entire mining industry Jeez. in South Africa. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I, when you said the name, I, I, know, I know the name. Yeah. But again, as one you can't, you you never quite put him together. 
But yeah. he, he's got a little statue there in the Devil's Kloof area because that's where he had his farm. That was yeah. that was that was his spot there. Then you've got another little little monument. This this guy's a little bit unknown. The guy that I'm administrator Stevenson, and uh, he was responsible for one of the first hospitals in that area. Okay, shall we? We're we still on a bit on the bit on the bit on the detour. Okay. Still a little bit on the detour. A okay. little bit, little bit up the road there. You got this little spot called the old Sunland, the Sunland Baobab, one of the biggest Baobabs in the country. Oh yeah, and that's the one that did get struck by lightning. The thing got split in half. But it used to have an entire little pub inside the baobab tree. Oh, And okay. uh, carbon dating put that baobab tree at about 6,000 years old. Gee. So incredible, incredible, incredible yeah. um, tree there. And unfortunately, I don't think it's open to the public anymore. I think it was, it was on the grounds of a, little, of a little resort. And I think yeah. that resort has actually closed down. Well, last time I checked, the thing had, had actually closed down. And the... Again, but those baobabs, and I mean, I mentioned the baobab because now you're hitting that that land of the baobabs. Our next stop, if we come off the off the detour and you can you travel back, you're actually going to hit Louis Trichardt or now Makado. Yeah. And um, as you go over the mountains or that Sonnenberg, then it's baobab paradise. There's the most beautiful trees and stuff. Yeah. As you go over that mountain, but anyway, I think maybe now we break through to some music. Okay, let's quickly do that. I've got one of my favorites up. Uh, little bit of Randy Travis. Do you know Randy Travis? I do know Randy Travis. I love his stuff. Okay, and this one is called Anything. I do anything. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, we we did detour a little bit, or well, not just a little bit. It's actually quite a hell of a detour if you go go via. Yeah. Judges Club. But it's and a nice come, detour. Come back. It's a beautiful detour. It's a, yeah. The road is a lot more. Scenic and interesting to drive than the flat nothing yeah. coming out of Petersburg, heading up to um, up to Louis Trichot de Mercado now. So it's, it's it's a lot longer, but yeah. that drive, just that drive through those mountains, those Tsinin mountains and stuff, is, yeah. is is actually just worth it. But now, if you're coming into Louis Trichot, you're coming in from the south. You've got this beautiful range of mountains up in front of you, the Sotpansberg. Yeah. And again, people underestimate it. It's one of our major, major mountain ranges, and it's almost like there's a division. I mean, you've just crossed, you've just crossed the Tropic of Capricorn. A couple of like a hundred k's further north, you're now getting into Louis Trichardt and these mountains. When you get over those mountains, you actually feel like you're in tropical Africa suddenly. Yeah. Because the landscape has changed, the plant growth has changed. You're in the land of the baobabs, and it's just a different. It's just a completely different spot. Yeah. If you again, we I think well, I think we might be on detour day today, but <laughs> you can you cannot. I escape, like the detours. <laughs> you cannot escape the influence of the foot trackers in this area. I mean, Louis Trichardt, the very name Louis Trichardt is a foot tracker name. Yeah, yeah. But an interesting little aside is down a little bit over. Towards the west is a place called Beisdorp. 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 <laughs> Interesting. And Beisdorp, we hit, we hit a similar character. We've got a guy here by the name of Kunrat de Beis. <laughs> 
And he's much like old John Dunn. Remember old John Dunn? Yes, yes. With his multiple wives and 175 children. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> We've got a kind of mirror image here in Mr. Kunrat de Bais. But Kunrat de Bais was actually, actually arrived in the area way before the foot trekkers even arrived. Okay. He, he originated um, down in, in the Eastern Cape. And I, he probably made life a little bit too hot for himself down there. So he actually, I think he actually had to move. He, <laughs> <laughs> one of those guys. Yeah, he's one of those guys. He's, he's sort of one of those guys that was sort of on the edge of the law and probably a bit of a cattle rustler and yeah. frontier bandit kind of character. <laughs> but he left and he actually took wives with him all the way from the Eastern Cape. And... He married several Tlaza princesses, believe it or not, and took okay. them with him on this trek north. And they settled in Beisdorp. And a thriving community developed in Beisdorp. And then one day, Kunrat decides, no, 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 he's leaving. And ostensibly to go and find a route to the east and, and um, a route to, the, to, to Maputo stroke, stroke Lorenzo Marx. Yeah. And he disappears. Okay. No known grave. No one heard of him again. But he left all these descendants of his now yeah. in this Beisdorp area. And they still live there today. So much like John Dunn has got all his descendants yeah, yeah. In, that, in that area in KZN, Beis, or Kunrad de Beis has left an entire legacy just outside um, Louis Trichot. Yeah. And again, it's just that, that cultural mix. So you've got a lot of Klaza genes that are now sitting on the Soutbansburg. Yeah. <laughs> you've, you've also got um, a little spot called Skumansdal, which is slightly, slightly closer to, yeah. um, to Louis Trichard. It used to be an open-air cultural museum. Unfortunately, that, that is no longer around. But it was first called Zoutpansbergdorp. Okay. And... Yeah, named after named after Stefano Skuman. But the vendor the vendor actually raised the town at some point. Again, the vendors the vendors weren't particularly keen on having the foot triggers in in their in their yeah. area. But it's considered <laughs> to be quite an important site of Africana history. And again, one of the Fortrecker leaders is buried there. General Andres, Andres Hendrik Potgieter. Andres Potgieter is buried there. Yeah. Potgieter being one of the preeminent leaders of the Great Trek. Yes. And again, if you look at the Great Trek, and I actually had a stunning conversation. I visited uh, our history guy, my, 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 my history professor, Emil, um, on the weekend. We actually went to had a visit, had a little rendezvous in, in Poch for the morning. Oh, lekker. <laughs> and... Um, and I, and I actually had to say to him, driving out of Johannesburg into Potchefstroom, you really you, you cross the Budavos curtain. It's a different world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you come out of, out of Gauteng in Johannesburg, and you arrive in Poch, and you stop. There's a lovely little restaurant there at the co-op, and there's feltskuns hanging from the from the from the, from the ceiling beams, and you know, there's Afrikaans Buddha music playing over the loudspeakers. <laughs> yeah. It's like going to springs. <laughs> no, it's, it springs on steroids. But I mean, just what a what an unbelievable difference. Yeah. <laughs> but okay, we digress. But we you, we're talking here about Port Gita and the leader of the foot trackers. 
if you look at an actual map of the foot trackers, it's the spider web of these little groups that crisscross each other. And this guy yeah. gets the hell in with this guy and he goes and joins this guy. And then he says that, but you're an idiot. You're going the wrong direction. I'm going to go this way and they go that way. <laughs> and, you know, and history, history tries to portray the fur trackers as like this united front coming to civilize yeah. Africa. I mean, that's, that's a myth. It's an absolute myth. It's yeah. this disorganized bunch of guys tricking all over the countryside. Yeah. And, Plonking we down. actually had a discussion about all the all the republics that existed in South Africa. And while we were talking, and this is going to be a podcast all on its own at some stage. Yeah. We we got to 11 foot-tracker republics. Wow. There were a total okay. of 11 foot-tracker republics. That doesn't count the places like the Republic of Swellen Dam and the ones early on in the Cape Colony. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were just 11 Boer republics, and one republic yeah. even consisted of one, of one guy and his next-door neighbor. Two people decided yeah. to declare a republic at some point. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that ties in with this absolute spiderweb of foot trackers going all over the countryside. But Potgieter was one of the preeminent leaders. Yeah. And, I mean, he came all the way in from, from uh, Graaf Renet. So he, he moves in from the Graaf Renet area. He, he signs he signs um, treaties with the Baralong. He signs a treaty with the Baralong, and he gets gets involved with um, the Matabili and Mitsulikatsi, and he actually faced Mitsulikatsi's warriors at Fechkop. Oh yeah, the Battle of Fechkop. Now again, a lot of these battles were the foot trekkers coming to one of the local tribes saying, "Listen, we will help you defend, protect." Or secure an area, but in lieu of that, give us land and give us you know security that we can actually set up farms and stuff, etc., etc. Yeah. And the Mitsulikatsi, Mitsulikatsi, and the Matabili were an offshoot to the Zulus. Yeah, um, it was a bunch of Zulus. Mitsulikatsi was one of the guys that got on the wrong side of King Shaka and had to move off out of out of, yeah. out of Zululand. And Mitsulikatsi first settled. In the Transvaal area, around the Rustenburg, you know, that northwest area. Okay. And he got kicked out of there. The Tswanas, a lot of conflict with the Tswanas. He moved further north. He gets into conflict with the foot trackers. And eventually he goes <laughs> and he moves into present-day Zimbabwe. Oh, but um, this Potgita is the guy who basically broke Mitsulikatsi's power here in the northwest. And at the Battle okay. of Fechkop. So he also, he, he was the guy, and I mentioned Potchestrom. There we go. Potchita actually founded Potchestrom, and Potchestrom is actually named after Potchita. Okay. So then he moves east. He goes to Urachstadt. Urachstadt is a, is, is a, is a, is a gemors. Urachstadt also, all the people die, die of malaria. And um, they then moved, set up the town called Leidenburg. Oh, and yeah. that's where the name Leidenburg comes from. Leiden uh, in Dutch means suffering. Yeah. So the foot trekker set up Urachstad or Andries Urachstad. That's where that's where it comes from. Urachstad. Um, yeah, Andries Urachstad. Okay. It was, it was first called Andries Urachstad. Then they decided that was too long, and then it just became Urachstad. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody died of malaria. There's a little cemetery just outside of town where you can see the graves and the hand carved little sandstone. Um, Headstones and stuff again, pretty heartbreaking. You see little kids two months old, three months old, yeah. six months old, three years old, all died of malaria. You know, they're born on the Great Trek, they live on the live in these off yeah. wagons, and then it all just doesn't work for them. But Potgieter was also one of these guys who decided that even places like Potchestrom and stuff were too close to the British. 
And um, then he actually moved right up north into the Sotbansburg area. And uh, Pretorius, Pretorius again, I don't think he was, or Potkito, I don't think he was um, a really easy guy. He also didn't really get on with, with old Andres Pretorius. Andres Pretorius, yeah. the guy from Blood River. You know, these guys, <laughs> again, <laughs> I don't think you'd know that. I'm going to go this way, I'm going to go this way, and all the rest of them. Yeah. <laughs> but um, he eventually died here in Zoutpansburg, or it's now called Skumansdal, um, in the mid-1852. The, the only the, in in town, a little town called Louis Trichard. Louis, Louis Trichard is now called Makado. And beautiful Dutch Reformed church in town. Again, one of those architectural masterpieces. And again, we've got old um, Gerard Moerdijk oh, involved. Yes. Yeah, I love I love when you again like I keep on saying when you've got the name Gerard Moerdijk on a yeah. building, you know it's something special. And this one, this church is a slightly different. Because it's actually built with six sides on it. Oh, it's like okay. a what, what do you what do you call that? Uh, uh, not a pentagon. Uh, hexagon. Heptagon. Heptagon. Septagon. Septagon. Hexagon. Septagon. I don't know. I don't know. Six, <laughs> six sides. Six sides. <laughs> I think it's a hexagon. <laughs> so six sides. It looks like a like a six sided church. But again, you stand yeah. in front of that thing, and you just the proportions and stuff. It just it just works. Mm, blows the mind. But in town. In town, you've got the little spot here called Fort Hendrina. And it's a fort named after General Pete Joubert's wife, Hendrina, Drini, Drini Joubert. Okay. And she had the um, the nickname of Fries Louis Drini. Joubert was common in general of the Transvaal at that stage. So, yeah. <laughs> as far as we know, it's the only collapsible fort that, that's actually left left in South Africa. And it's what, this is a little fort. A lot of people go up to it and think it's one of the old like Transvaal blockhouses that we were always talking about, the Anglo-Boer. Yeah. This predates the blockhouses by years. Okay. And already in the 1880s, the Transvaal government was using these as mobile forts in their battles with some of the local communities. Yeah. Because obviously you're standing inside a metal fort with a little slot that you can put your rifles through, and the guys running up to your spears are not going to have a... A, yeah, a, a lot of impact on you. They're not so going to make a dent. They're not going to make a dent <laughs> on that thing. So th- this thing dates back to, to the to the eighteen eighties, and um, apparently this thing got moved around a couple of times, and eventually it was bought by the municipality and put on its present site because it was actually used there. Yeah. Um, when there was an artillery spot like that, or a, a little artillery emplacement in in the town. In town as well, there's now the, the statue of Makado. Makado being a, a Bavenda chief. And actually a very, very successful and very, very clever and very, very um, militaristic leader. And considered to be one of, the, one of the better warlords of the Bavenda. And very well respected, very, very well respected by the, by the foot trekkers, the Shangan okay. and the, the Baperi. And the Bavenda actually regard him almost as a bit of a, a liberating force against the okay. impact and the intrusion of the fur trackers and of the Europeans coming into town. But strange, strangely enough, the the town of Louis Trichard was going to be renamed Makadu. There were objections, not just from the Afrikaners, but the Bapedis and Shangans don't like this guy. Okay. So they also <laughs> okay. objected to the town being called Makado. 
So the municipality still carries his name, but the town is still called Louis Trichard. It gets very complicated yeah. in South Africa uh, yeah. with, these, with these multiple names and name, name changes. changes. And uh, <laughs> once again, here we go. Oh, <laughs> it's like Pretoria and Chwani. I'm never quite sure if it's still Pretoria, yeah. not Pretoria, Chwani or District Chwani and City Pretoria. Or So thing, things get complicated in our, in, yeah. our, in our country. But once you're out of, once you leave Louis Trichard and you're heading north, you you almost immediately, in fact, I think the hill, the slope already starts in town as you're climbing up um, the mountains there, as, as you're going up there through through the, the, the place called Hunklip. Okay, and, I've heard of Hunklip. Uh, it's stunning. That, that road again is one of those beautiful roads to drive. The, 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 the southern side of the, of, the, of the pass, very, very steep. As you get over the top, the, the northern slope is yeah. a much more gentle slope. But then you really... As you're coming off that mountain, you just see this beautiful countryside stretching out in front of you. Yeah. But you first got to trek, trek through what's called the Hendrik Verwoerd Tunnels. The sixth Prime Minister of South Africa, Dr. H.F. Verwoerd. Okay. A lot of people yeah. consider him to be the father of apartheid. Okay. And he's like the bad guy. When you blame someone, you either blame Verwoerd or you blame, blame, blame Van Riebeek. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jans is gold. Jans is gold. <laughs> but... <laughs> Those, those tunnels built in the 1960s, again, just to facilitate transport and to facilitate movement northwards. And 1961 is also, of course, when South Africa became a republic. Yeah. So eventually we stopped being a part of the British Empire and we became a republic outside of the British com- Commonwealth. But mainly, again, due to Fuvwood's policies, he was a big um, driving force behind us becoming a republic in yeah. order to... Again, promote the Afrikaner nationalism thing and um, to promote the... No, not really so much... Yeah, because it was, again, the British did not have the same vision of Afrikaner nationalism as the Afrikaners had. Yeah, And the Afrikaner nationalism was regarded as the only way to build up the white nation in, in, in South Africa and basically still to counteract the effects of the Anglo-Boer War. I mean, we're still talking, we're talking 50 years later. Yeah. But to counter the effects of the Anglo-Boer War as well as World War II, and just as an aside to that, the Miners' Revolt in 1922 that we touched yes. on. Yeah. Again, a lot of that was because of the Anglo-Boer War. The, farm, the farmlands had been stripped and burnt. The women oh. and children being put into concentration camps. The farms were gone. So the population moves into the cities. They're looking for work. It happens to coincide yeah. with the mining boom. So a lot of these guys go into the mining mining yeah. industry, working underground. And the miners' strike was a result of them trying to lower the wages of white miners. Yeah. Again, part of that Afrikaner nationalism, trying to build up, you know, the, 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 the nation after the Anglo-Boer War. Yeah, yeah. So interesting, interesting topics and interesting concepts to... To explore at some stage. Yeah. And then, I mean, it's just beautiful countryside, basically. Then you get in, you drive into Messina. Messina now becoming a real border town. And with all the chaos that goes with it. I mean, I think the over December, I think the, the queue of buses on, the queue of um, trucks trying to get through that border post was something like 75 kilometers long. Yeah. With all the COVID restrictions and stuff. Wow. They even found guys almost dying of thirst on the side of the road with their yeah. trucks. There was no, it was chaos. It was absolute chaos at that, at that, at the, at the Bite Bridge border post. Yeah. But again, Bite, the name Bite, Alfred Bite. Do you know who Alfred Bite was? 
Um, we did uh, speak about <laughs> we him. Have, we have yeah, mentioned we have. him before. He yeah. pops up, and he pops up particularly um, in conjunction with Cecil John Rhodes. Yes. Alfred White um, comes originally from Germany, goes, goes into Amsterdam. He becomes part of an apprentice for a big French financing company. And this company then sends Alfred White to Kimberley when the diamond rush begins in 1870. Oh, yes. So Alfred White arrives down Kimberley. Kimberley is now where Cecil John Rhodes is Operating. coming to prominence. <laughs> yeah. So he obviously, as part of the financing houses and the financing guys, talking to Rhodes. Rhodes is hungry for money and development, etc., etc. So these two guys develop a, a relationship. And um, he then stays with De Beers for the rest of his life. Okay. And he was actually one of the main financiers for Rhodes' political and business ambitions. Okay. So Alfred Byte, not quite as notorious as Cecil John Rhodes, but definitely part yeah. of that whole thing. He yeah. just managed to escape um, being implicated in what was called the Jamison Raid. Okay. The Jamison Raid, I'm going to touch on that one because I want to tie the Jamison Raid to the 1922 miner strike because both of those were little mini wars fought yeah. about ownership of the mines and both of them were about Johannesburg and both of them were about the gold mines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So those two have an interesting little parallel if you compare the Jamison Raid and you compare the 1922 miners' strike. There's a common yeah. thread that runs through there. But Alfred Byte... I mean, again, one of these towering figures of those days and, and of the um, uh, De Beers Consolidated Mines Company. And an interesting thing, though, is I know a lot of people go against the colonialism thing and they put tearing down statues, etc., etc. But he, again, donated massive sums of monies to universities and scholarships all over Southern Africa. And much like the Rhodes Scholarships that still okay. exist today, yeah. there are still the, the Alfred Byte Scholarship is still given today to aspiring and deserving okay. students from Zambia, Zimbabwe, and Malawi. Wow! So that okay. money from those diamonds, etc., yeah. etc., et still come through, and that bridge, the Byte Bridge, is the actually Bite a bridge, bridge over yeah. over the river. Over the Limpopo River. Yeah, we've been moving towards that bridge now for the past We've been three moving weeks. towards that. <laughs> we've been moving to this river now for the last four four episodes or so. Yeah, <laughs> we're getting there. <laughs> but Are yeah, there it's, a, it's a it's a it's a double bridge. I mean, you've got you've got the you've got the railway line, and you've got the the road bridge. Yeah, and again, it's an interesting one because that railway bridge was again part of. Rhodes's ambition for that railway line from Cape Town to Cairo. Yeah. I mean, one of the stories I love about, about Rhodes is when he built the bridge over the Zambezi at the Victoria Falls. He rerouted it to go to the Victoria Falls because he just loved the Victoria Falls. Yeah. I mean, imagine having that much power. You can decide which, which route, which, which way your own railway line goes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he, he builds it. And his instructions at... On the Zambezi River, where he says the passengers have to go across in the spray of the falls, so okay. he had to build it as close as possible to the waterfall, so the passengers yeah. could see the waterfall. And then he built his hotel so that he could see his bridge and the waterfall at the same time. 
<laughs> and it's yeah. one of my favorite things to do when I get up to Victoria Falls. I go and sit on the veranda of what's called the Victoria Falls Hotel. Beautiful old colonial building. Yeah. And you can sit on that veranda. And again, the ghosts of these imperial guys actually run around those corridors. Yeah. But you can sit on that veranda and you can stare down this, this, this valley. And you've got the bridge. And just behind the bridge, you actually see that mass of water yeah. of the Vic Falls flowing behind it. Absolutely stunning. Uh, the ghosts of Alfred Byton, Cecil Rhodes, runs through yeah. all of these little stories here. He's like the Elon Musk or the Yeah, no, the, uh, power, those guys. the power and money these guys had <clears throat> was just staggering. Absolutely staggering. But interesting characters, very, very interesting characters to, to explore and look at and see the legacies that they left and these little threads that run through all this history yeah. with these guys. Yeah. I love it. I love unearthing these bits and pieces and putting them all together. Yeah. But yeah, that's us. The N1 is now done. So that's, that's now the second longest national road. I've now got to decide which, which next one or whether we put another couple of other arbitrary bits and pieces in between in the next next couple of podcasts <laughs> and then we do another couple of the national roads it's still got yeah. quite a few of them to go up yeah no that's uh, <laughs> we can do that where are we at? oh well, yeah we are at the end of the show i think basically. we're at the end of the show but guys just just on 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 that aside we have now in total on our podcasts 1383 podcasts have been downloaded we've hit 54 different countries yeah, which is really cool. Being that means that the word of South African tourism and that we're actually world class destination is going out there, and the podcast downloads are happening. Tourism is coming back. I saw this morning yeah. there's they're expecting two cruise ships hitting Cape Town. I think tomorrow and the next day, or tomorrow and three or four days after that, the cruise ships are coming back. The tourists are coming back. Okay, uh, it's cool. great news. It's all yeah. starting to happen. So before before the service can't handle it, download the app. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Diedrich. That was uh, a like lot of fun. Always, always, always fun. It's always yes. fun. Okay, let's go listen to some music. Uh, awesome. See you guys next week. Same time, same place. Cheers, guys. Bye.